0: Red flags don't look like red flags when they feel like home. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. Yeah, I'm still saying that shit. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea and I am a total shit show. I am a recovering alcoholic who had a broken ass man picker. I kept dating um, active alcoholics as a sober alcoholic or emotionally unavailable gentlemen. And I couldn't figure out what the hell was wrong with me until I, I hit an excruciatingly painful bottom, which you can hear all about in episode one, in which I realized that my childhood screwed me up a whole hell of a lot more than I thought it did. Now I had always known my childhood had been less than ideal, but I never considered what I went through as traumatic. Uh, I have since learned that what I went through was quite traumatic and that uh, what I experienced in romantic relationships is a little old thing that we call complex PTSD, which is quite horrible, (laughs) y'all. It is one of the worst experiences ever. And um, I'm just so grateful that I finally figured out what the hell was wrong with me because that is when change and healing became a true possibility for me. So that's what we talk about here. We talk about what to do when you realize that your childhood screwed you up a whole hell of a lot more than you thought it did. Uh, And let me just say you are you're in good company. There is so much hope and healing that lies ahead for you. And in my opinion, only people the only interesting people and the only people worth, you know, spending time with are people who had fucked up childhoods. Oh, that's the other thing you should know, too. I'd like to say fuck. So you have been warned. Buckle up. It gets weird around here. okay? so today we are diving deep with Ingrid Clayton, Dr. Ingrid Clayton, I should say. And I just want to give a shout out to Danielle, who's a listener, who reached out via email and said, you need to have Ingrid on your podcast. And she was right, as you'll soon hear. Ingrid is like the perfect guest for this podcast. she is a recovering alcoholic as well who like me didn't really realize how traumatic her childhood was until, you know, many many years into her sobriety. She is also uh, a clinical psychologist and the author of a few bo- books, books, a few books, a few books, but most recently her memoir, Believing Me: Healing from Narcissistic Abuse and Complex Trauma. So we are getting into her story, trigger warning. Trigger warning on every damn episode, y'all. So we're talking about her childhood. We're talking about what healing has looked like for her. And we're also talking about what I think is such an important thing to discuss. And that is the limitations of the 12 steps, in particular, AA and NA, as it relates to uh, childhood trauma. So it is a fabulous conversation that I know you'll get a ton out of. Let's just get the damn show on the road. But first, of course, how about you damn the join shit show? So this is my online community where I host weekly Zoom support groups. So we have three groups a week. Well, we actually have four groups a week. So we meet on Sundays at 3.30 p.m. Eastern. We meet on Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern and Thursdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. We also have a loving parent guidebook group that we do on Monday nights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. There is a, um, a small group for childhood sexual abuse survivors that are lovely, wonderful Andrew hosts on Wednesday evenings. I want to say that's at 8 or eight thirty p.m. Eastern. It is also a support group at your fingertips. So this is an app that you can access either on your phone or on the computer. At any point, at any time during the day, you can reach out and I guarantee you there's somebody that's going to respond to you if you're having a hard time and I encourage you to go listen to this past week's Shit Show Saturday, which is a recording from a group that we had last week, which will just give you a little taste of what we got going on in there, you know, this is similar to an ACA meeting, but it's a little looser, we allow crosstalk. it's not like we're, you know, directly giving somebody telling somebody directly what they're supposed to do, or what they shouldn't do. But we do comment directly on if we can relate to what you know, somebody else has shared, definitely more uh, laughing, which I think is just so very important and is actually why I felt so compelled to create this community. Because, you know, in in AA meetings, I feel like there is um, a lot more of an ability to laugh at our shit. And I didn't find that as much in um, in ACA meetings. And that's totally understandable, right? Like, we are dealing with some really heavy, dark shit. um, But for me personally, I do think that it is so crucial that we find the humor in, um, in what we're experiencing as well. So that is why I created this community. So go give this a damn try. Okay, you deserve it. You can quit after a month. We do not heal in a vacuum, okay? We do not heal this shit alone. So give it a damn try. See the link in show notes. Yes, I'm talking to you, the person that's wanting to join for forever who hasn't done it, but you're gonna do it right now, okay? Next, please give me a little follow on Insta on the TikTok. And last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating on Apple and Spotify. This helps so much in getting the podcast out to other people. So just remember, if you don't give me one, you are partially to blame for a suffering adult child not finding this podcast. Thanks. Love you all. All right, y'all. We're in for a treat. So we have Ingrid Clayton. She's a clinical psychologist. She's a trauma therapist. She's got a couple of books that we're going to talk about. Believing Me, that's your memoir yeah recovering spirituality which is kind of all about like spiritual bypassing which I think is fascinating you have not deemed yourself this but I am going to deem you a recovering shit show so welcome thank you for having me I will take the title of recovering shit show I will add it to my As- resume yeah absolutely I, mean. I think it sums it all I, I I used to say former shit show but I'm like that's not oh accurate. yeah no ongoing for sure <laughs> oh so, here's my deal I was reading what in your memoir, what did it say? It was so good. It was like, basically you said something specifically like about nine years, you know, in a couple books, it talks, I think in one of Melody Beatty's books and maybe in one of Tion Dayton's books too, she talks about that seven to 10 years is when all of sobriety is when all that shit comes to the surface. So for me, it was romantic relationships. Shocking, right? Yeah. And my bottom was I dated two alcoholics named Brian back to back (laughs) in sobriety. So Brian, number one, seven years sober, we dated for less than a month. He ghosted me. And my reaction was as if my husband of 30 years had just tragically died in a plane crash Oh yeah, and I became non-functioning. And the first aha was there's no way that the way that I'm feeling right now could actually be about this person for less than a month. And then aha was that this was a feeling that I felt often as a child. Wow. A couple months later, I go to a meeting and I hear a woman with over 30 years sober talk about the bottom that she hit at seven years where she came to terms with the true impact that her child had had on her. And she mentioned the book, Adult An Child. And I went home and I read it and my mind was blown. And then I saw her the next week and I was like, thank you for your share. And she was like, it's great. I just want you to know that this is going to take you like many, 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 many years to work through, like 28. And I was like, I don't fucking have years, lady. <laughs> No, like, And I just really hope that her childhood was like way more fucked up than mine. Right. So I was like, I'll just read this book and I'll take a year off from dating and surely that'll be good. Oh yeah. And number two, worst six months of my entire life, most painful six months of my entire life. That was at nine years sober. And that's when I realized that what I was dealing with was a lot just as powerful, actually more powerful than my alcoholism. And that's when I really understood that I was, what I was experiencing was trauma. Yeah. And then that kind of led me on my journey. So the one question that I'd love to ask is like, was there a particular aha moment where you were like, holy shit, like my childhood impacted me way more than I thought it did.
1: That's such a big question. I mean, I'll say I've been someone who since my childhood actually knew that I was being deeply negatively impacted. I was the kind of kid who like talked to my friends and found the counselors at school and I was very verbal and articulate and I knew that things were not like my friends' homes, right That thing of like I want to hang out at your house because you're doing like normal family things and so a part of me always knew and I think my story's been more of an unfolding over time you know, because I think I've had some magical thinking that, well, because I know that it was bad, I'm going to move away and I'm going to, you know, Andrea, I'm going to get sober at 21. Okay? okay. So boom, kick the alcoholism, quit smoking somewhere along the way after that, you know, I'm going to go back to school and I'm going to get me some degrees. Okay. I'm going to just really stack the deck. I'm going to move kind of far away, you know? And like I did all of these things, not necessarily with this idea that I was going to override or overcome or get better, but yeah, that's what I was doing. Right. And now, you know, all these decades later, I can put that in the framework of trauma and look at it as a flight response, right? It's a flight trauma response that flight sometimes is, you know, it's the animal in the woods and they feel like they're going to get attacked and they run. Flight is also sometimes, I'm going to stay in perpetual motion. I'm going to outrun this thing. It's uh-huh. my perfectionism. It's my obsessive compulsive tendencies. It is my addiction, right? It just morphed into a million, the, that whack-a-mole game idea is basically my life. If it's spring, uh-huh. a symptom springs up over here, ah, got it, you know? And so I think it's been over time, like an awakening, a reawakening, Oh my gosh, it affected me there. Wow. I had no idea it affected me here. And, you know, I think part of the truth of my story too, is that a big piece of the dysfunction was narcissism and narcissistic abuse, which came with a lot of gaslighting, right? So it was also, yeah. that I was told repeatedly, you're the problem. You made it all up. None of that really happened. It wasn't that bad. And I think I... Like most children internalize that at least to some degree. So it was like I was split. A half of me mm-hmm. knew better. You know, I'm not the bad guy. This was wrong and inappropriate and unhealthy. And this other part of me was like, well, and quite frankly, I think the 12 steps helped me in this regard go, well, let me just look at my side of the street and, you know, let me lean into forgiveness and, spirituality and all these things. And that's going to be enough to kind of repair these relationships and move forward, move on, let it go. And I think I rode that so deeply into the ground until I just literally, my body was like, you cannot do this one more day. You are carrying the entire burden for the entire system. And it's run you into the ground. It's like, The final epiphany was like the last house on the block for me to go. There's nothing left for me to outrun, do, right? What am I going to like get three more degrees? I mean, you know, there was just nowhere else to turn except for inward. And Mm -hmm. that's why the memoir is called Believing Me, because I had to go back and go, wait a second, what really happened, first of all, own it, own the truth of it, and then I say this all the time. If we don't own our stories as traumatic, we cannot avail ourselves of the tools of trauma healing. So as long as I was minimizing, maybe it wasn't that bad. Other people had it so much worse. I can't, I'm not, that wasn't really trauma, right? As long as I kept minimizing, I could never really heal. Because what am I healing from, right? It's like So I honestly just think my body got so that it couldn't do
0: it anymore when you talk about that last house on the block moment was what it triggered that
1: well it's a few things one is that after a string of only unhealthy relationships my entire life romantic relationships mm-hmm. i finally you know found myself after getting divorced you know to an active alcoholic and all of these things i found myself in the healthiest relationship of my life and i think mm-hmm. from having that contrast and that true sort of reciprocal healthy, dynamic. It gave me some safety. It gave me a container to be able to look at some other things. I also had a child, which was a little bit like, oh boy, the stakes are so much higher now. It's not just about me. It's about my son. And then uh, my stepdad, who is the sort of main culprit abuser abuser. in my life, he died. And I really believe, you know, for anyone who's like, why, you know, can't, couldn't I do this work sooner? What's wrong with me? Or I just couldn't see it. You know what? I am a practicing psychologist, trauma therapist. And I really honestly believe that I could not see my own truth until my body said it's safe enough to do so. And it became safe enough to do so when that man was no longer Mm -hmm. on the planet. It was instant. I felt safer than I had maybe ever felt in my whole life. And something changed. And I became available to myself in ways that I was not available when I was still guarding against all of that pain. And is it going to happen again? And, you know, he was still married to my mom very much in my life, even if it was at a distance. And so, I just say to folks, it takes what it takes, right? And it's not up to us. It wasn't up to me. I've been working at it for so long. Like, you know, if there was a retreat, sign me up. You know, like how many 12-step programs do I need to be in? Like I did all the things. I'd sat on a million therapist couches. I'd told my story 10,000 times. And these were some of the building blocks that like had to finally be in place for me to like see it differently,
0: see it differently. Mm -hmm. I can really relate to what you shared about. I too was aware that my childhood was like, not great. Like my mom was an alcoholic. My parents fought a lot, but I became the identified patient and the scapegoat at a pretty young age. And so from like 12 to 19, that's, I was the primary focus of the family. So I got sent to treatment for the first time in eighth grade and I was an only child. And so that worked in fixing the family. Like when I started drinking and using drugs and acted out, My mom stopped much, and my parents stopped fighting, and so I really was like the focus until I got sober, and then it's been like a downward spiral for the both of them. But like I intellectually understood that it was not great, but I thought that because I could talk about it without getting upset, that meant it didn't really impact me. Wow, being a you know being like a news reporter standing in front of a burning building and it's actually your house, you know? (laughs) Yeah, which is actually one of the,
1: you know, most common signs of trauma is we're talking about it like this. Yes, that happened to me. And I'm actually not here because I've left my body, right? But we think that it's like, oh no, like it's, you know, it's so well processed. No, it's so unprocessed. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're so disconnected from your own self that
0: you can report it. That's a perfect way to talk about it. And I was also forced to talk about all that stuff too, so much. And it wasn't that I was minimizing. Yes, I was minimizing it, but like not from, um. like I didn't know what I didn't know. Like yes. I didn't know what complex trauma was. I didn't know what that was. Yes, none of us did. Uh, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I just continued to be what a like my. I really started working on this stuff in 2018 and I just continue to be blown away at, Ugh! All the places that it shows up, you know. Yeah, it's fucking hard. Is so. Was your and I want to go back to your childhood and talk about that some, but I don't know what your experience was like in, in being in or in AA and stuff. And it's nobody was able to point out like, hey, maybe you need to go get some extra help. You know, nobody once ever said like, oh, I think that this is trauma. And granted, I was like, I got sober in the South and I think it's a little bit different, you know, but it's that's like why now when I'm in a meeting and it's appropriate, I will share this stuff because yeah, you go through your childhood, like in, you know, in your fourth and fifth step, but not just the degree that we actually need to. And I just think that so many people that are suffering that have a lot of sobriety under their belt. Who have no idea? That's why.
1: I mean, I think that my thinking about addiction and trauma it has really changed so much over the years. I just had 28 years sober in September. What's your date? September 17th.
0: Okay, I'm the 13th. I had 15 years.
1: Oh, congratulations. And listen, don't get me wrong. I am so grateful for my sobriety. I feel like it's foundational to me being able to do anything else. Like, so, and the community that I've met, and there's just been so many positives right along the way. And I think, you know, even the mental health community, we just have so much more information now. And the truth is, we moved away from this notion of the disease model. And I really see addiction add an extension of trauma, right? It's the body's way. And I think quite an intelligent way of trying to find some peace and connection or disconnect from the pain. And when it finds something that works, it's going to do it again and again. And so if you now place that back in this context of being asked to do a moral inventory, I have a hard time with that today. I have a hard time with that today. I did not need a moral inventory. You know, I needed Mm -hmm. healing. I needed some validation around the wounds that were deep and, you know, pervasive my whole life. And I think depending on where you live to your other point, right in the country or in the world or who you happen to hear in a meeting, maybe sometimes you get these nuanced perspectives. But I think for a lot of folks, you know, and I heard it so often in early sobriety, and I was in New York, like a pretty progressive place with a lot of information. And they would say, well, you know, when it comes down to the fourth step, like someone abusing you is never your fault. You don't have a part in that, right? But they might say, but your part is that you're still holding on. Your part is that you're renting out space to people, you know, in your own head head or carrying around. That's my part. And you know what? That is re-traumatizing to folks. That is just, again, the body's way of protecting. And we don't have a conscious choice. I think as maybe addicts in particular, we love this idea that we can figure it out. It's what we did with our drugs and alcohol. Like I'm a chemist. I'm going to do a little of this and a little of that. I'm going to create this experience, right? So we love this idea that I'm going to write it all down. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to you know, exercise that from my life. I'm going to... And it's way more complicated than that. And so I, I maybe got a little off track there from the number no. you were asking me. But my thinking has definitely changed as as it relates to addiction. And I see pretty much everything through the lens of trauma now because it's the one thing that allowed me to make sense to myself and not have so much shame, right? Because that's the other thing. It's, oh, honey, you're still carrying that around? Well, that was so long ago. Like, maybe you should pray about it again and again. Maybe you should be of compulsive service, okay? So here's my other big thing that I really come to understand that if we look at the founders of 12-step, it's 99 men, one Woman, Look at that from the lens of trauma. Chances are perhaps that most of these men were engaged in a chronic overactive fight response. For a fight response, you do want to encourage things like service. You do want to say that like anger is a luxury, maybe for normal men, like, right? Dubious luxury. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Dubious. Yes. When you look at the other end of the fight response, and this is based on Pete Walker's work, who mm-hmm. is amazing with complex trauma. He's done us such a service mm-hmm. with his work. The other end of the fight response is the fawn response, which basically is codependency, but I love the language of fawning more because it's rooted in trauma. So if you look at the fight response and you say, like, resentments are the number one offender, you know, anger isn't allowed, do a moral inventory, call somebody else, get outside of yourself, be of service, those are useful suggestions. If you are living in a chronic fawn response, like I was for decades... Those are all counterindicated. Those are all things that kept me stuck uh. in a chronic, fawning, codependent response. And so we just need so much more nuance and information, I think, and listen, like anything else, like we, we continue to grow and learn and we just need to adopt those new ideas. And I think some people are and some people aren't and it gets tricky and, you know, I am speaking personal experience, but also as a clinician. And I think some of these things that have been handed down and down can do more harm than good.
0: I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it saved my life, you know. Yes, me too. Um, That's the thing. <laughs> it you know, but at the same time, I think that what you're saying about certain things being re-traumatizing. So my understanding is like, I don't think I would have been able to like address and get to this stuff unless I had that sobriety under my belt. However, right. I right. think that there's other people who are unable to get any time under their belt because they're not addressing that. So it's like kind of a hard thing to to measure because I think that sometimes for me, I wasn't in a position to really start looking at this when I was in early sobriety. But then you have other people to where, like I said, unless it's addressed immediately or up front or, you know, in early sobriety, they're not going to be able to get any time under their belt.
1: That's right. And I've seen that all the time in my decades as a therapist, that,
0: You know, it's so independent. It's so
1: individual. It's like some people need that deep trauma scaffolding first and some people can't touch it until well, well into sobriety. So I'm just saying, you know, there's no one size fits all. And I think Mm -hmm. we need a little more breathing room, which I know is also scary because it's like, but these are the principles that saved my life. And you know what my best thinking got me here. So I need to take the rule of the law and sort of do what's suggested. And so it's a tricky conversation.
0: I'm curious for you. And I've had this experience where my friends like in the program that I've gotten to a level of depth that makes them very uncomfortable to a level of depth. Yeah. And I recently just had a friendship breakup and she's been my, one of my best friends for, since I got sober, you know, and she kind of just like broke up with me out of nowhere. But I mean, the gist of it is like, you know, she feels like I strayed from AA Yeah. You know, and that's like the problem that's, you know, it's painful and hurtful, but I just notice how, you know, our journeys, like we grow together, we grow apart. But I think that sometimes when we're touching, we're getting to a certain level of depth in ourselves or talking about certain topics that can make other people feel real damn uncomfortable.
1: Yeah. I I mean, I've seen it happen. It happened early in my own Very early sobriety, I was seeing a therapist and AA was absolutely saving my life. I was like, you know, three subway rides down to a morning meeting at 730 in the morning every single day. And and I'm seeing this new therapist and she's, I think you should read this book, Drama of the Gifted Child. And I was like, okay, you know, I'm a good student. I'm compliant. I'll go and read it. And there was, I don't even remember what it was, but it was something that was a little like I interpreted it as anti-12 step. And I was like, I can't read this book, right? Mm-hmm. It felt threatening to the thing that was giving me the most safety at the time. And so that is just kind of how the body works, right? It's I'm going to hold on to the things that are really working for me. And I'm not going to create any more space for anything new until my body says that it is ready. And mm-hmm. I've have to honor that. Right. And, and it's not even hierarchical necessarily. It's like everybody is doing their own work in a different way, at a different pace. They're meant to look at different things at a different time, you know, and some people are here for a lifetime and some are for a season, you know, and that's okay.
0: It is okay. Okay. So let's backtrack to your childhood. Okay. So how do you summarize your breed of dysfunction that you were exposed to? Deep alcoholism
1: runs on both sides of my family. Me too. I was screwed
0: too. Didn't didn't stand a chance. Yes,
1: hundred (laughs) percent. I wrote a scene in my book where I'm about eight years old, which is my son's age now. So particularly Mm. breaks my heart. But. My parents are smoking pot with their friends in the living room and they have me and my younger brother join in the circle and I'm holding a bong in my tiny little eight-year-old hands, like watching it light up as I feel, right? So wow. I was telling someone yesterday, we were sort of talking about these themes and I was older than eight at the time, but my parents, after they got divorced and my mom and stepdad were together, they had an Easter party and it was for their friends and the kids who were there all hid little bottles of booze around the backyard for the adults to find mm-hmm. and Santa got a shot and a beer, right? He was over that milk and cookies thing. So the alcoholism thing to me was like apparent from day one. I wrote my term paper in eighth grade. So I'm 12 years old. We could write about anything. And I grew up in Colorado and friends are writing about skiing and snowboarding or maybe their favorite musician. Andrea, the title of my paper at 12 years old was alcoholism, the family disease. Okay, so, so I was in deep. I was like, I'm gonna figure this thing out. I know what's going on. I always knew where they hid the drugs. Sometimes it was in those little cabinets above the refrigerator. Sometimes it was behind their waterbed headboard, deep in their closet. I just needed to know. I was hyper vigilant, tracking mm-hmm. all the time. When are they coming home from the bar? Oh, I hear the footsteps. I hear the car coming down the gravel driveway. They're here. Run to your rooms. You don't know what the mood is going to be. Calling the bar. The bartenders knew me and my brother and stepbrother's voices. Oh, hey, you know, let me get your stepdad. Well, when are you coming home? And so addiction, addiction, addiction. I always knew.
0: I'm curious. I was told that my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. Wow. I too was like very aware of what alcoholism was. And my dad, he really parentified me in the sense of like, he would have me help him search the house for my mom's booze. And I remember being like nine years old and going into the liquor cabinet and taking a paint stick and like marking the levels of each bottle. And because my mom's drinking was a secret from everybody else. So he only really talked to me about it. But I'm curious, like at 12 years old, how did you find out about the term alcoholism?
1: I don't even know. As we're starting to talk, I was like, I have no idea where I got that specific language at that age. Because it was talk, like
0: they talked to me about it directly. You know, like I was, you know, it was very inappropriate, but it didn't yeah. sound like in your family. They were like,
1: no, it didn't come from my parents. Like we're alcoholics and this might, you know, impact you in this way. no. They were not talking about it. I don't know where I got that language. Maybe That's really maybe interesting. I'll let that percolate and the memory will come. But yeah, so I, I always had that foundation. And then, you know, my parents divorced like fourth grade and immediately it seemed like they both had new partners and they both had new partners who were clearly the boss. So both hmm. of my parents had Who was that- the boss in their relationship? It's hard for me to say for sure because I was so much younger, but I I've always sort of felt like my biological parents were kind of the same person. And were you happy when they got divorced? No, devastated. No. Devastated. All of us were. It was like this sad thing sitting down my one biological brother and my parents like when they were telling us we were all four just sobbing. I couldn't believe it was going to happen. And then um, just pretty quickly moved out with my mom and the man who became my stepdad, who I knew because he used to be my dad's best friend. Of course. (laughs) So then because he's the controlling narcissist, he starts pulling us further and further away from the suburbs we're in, from family, Mm. from friends. My mom's more isolated. We're more isolated. Moved to the mountains, what felt like the middle of nowhere coming from Denver. And I just, it was like, I literally saw my mom disappear. She was standing in his shadow. She wouldn't say anything. I swear, unless she literally heard him say those words before, like that was her permission to go like, oh no, this is how we feel about it. And I was like, but you're my mom. He's not my parent. Like you're the, and she was just like lost herself completely, a hundred percent lost herself and I didn't stay with my dad as much, but it had the same flavor, same feeling. Like his wife was the one who had the say, right? And I just sort of felt like I lost them both. I lost Mm. them both. And I didn't understand. I didn't have the language for that. I didn't, you know. And then my stepdad ended up, what I now know, was grooming me to be his next-in-line girlfriend and... He did it in a very covert way. And so it was confusing, right? It's sort of that I'm doing and saying things, but I'm not, I'm doing them for these reasons. And- Do you have any
0: specific examples?
1: Well, you know, I talk about in the book, maybe I'm 12 years old and I'm sitting outside in our hot tub by myself at night and he comes out and he gets in with me and he just starts- blurring the lines and closing Uh. space between us. And he's kind of joking with me, which is a relief because a lot of the time he's an asshole or he's shutting me out, right? That sort of classic trauma bonding, intermittent reinforcement. I love you now. I hate you tomorrow kind of thing. So I was already in that cycle. And so getting a little bit of positive attention was such a relief. I was like, oh, thank God. So that was the beginning. And then he's, hey, why don't you come sit on my lap? But it felt like a very fatherly thing. Like, hey, it's my olive branch, right? Like we've been going through some tough times. And it was the way that he held me. And then what he said was, I'm so glad we can be this close. Like other girls would be more uptight. And I was like, are you saying that this could be inappropriate? And I started kind of pushing back on it to the degree that I could. And... It was just that whole scene. I just, my body clocked every second of that being as so wrong and deeply traumatizing. But I couldn't say that to him. I couldn't ask more direct questions because I might embarrass him. And if I embarrass him, I'm really going to get in trouble. And, you know, fast forward years later, my mom is with her dying father in Texas and they're rarely apart. So this is like a real moment in time. Like she never like would go traveling by herself. It's truly by necessity. And the second that she leaves, he comes back to my room and says, Hey, how'd you like to go to Las Vegas this weekend? And it's couched in this whole idea that I was like a budding singer and he was a singer, songwriter, musician, and I want to show you true entertainers. And but How don't old you? 16. But don't tell your brothers about it. You know, they think I'm going out of town on business and that you're gonna be staying with a friend. And I'm like, but why is it a lie? Right? Like, why can't I tell them? And so again, my body's mm. thinking this is wrong. I'm terrified. But again, I'm also like, but he's not grounding me for months at a time, giving me the silent treatment for months at a time he's actually cherishing these things about me that I feel deserve to be cherished and loved and adored. And, wouldn't. and so I went to Vegas with him and mm-hmm. it was like the crux of what became this deep trauma that has stayed with me for decades since. And it's not because he raped me or wooed me into sleeping with him. It was because of all of the gaslighting and that didn't really happen. And you're making it all up. And my mom's saying, well, I believe that you believe those things happened, but I don't really believe that they did. And so when your body is going, this is wrong, this is wrong, something, and everybody around you is saying, it's perfectly fine. You're the problem. As a child, especially on some level, we will always make ourselves at fault. Because Mm. we need our caregivers to survive. We're one of the very few species who else raises children until they're 18 years old, right? We are hardwired for relationship and privileging our caregivers above all else, even if a part of us knows this is wrong. So again, that split in me, right? It was just, boom, even further concretized. Like a part of me knows it was you, and I know that that was wrong, and I'm pretty sure you were parading me around as a girlfriend, and the other part of me is going... Maybe he really wasn't. I mean, he never called me his girlfriend. And a big part of what I ended up uncovering and writing my memoir, because I got like fearless and shameless about looking under every single rock and calling whomever I could think of. And I got so much information that little me needed, which is that this was a historical pattern that he had carried out many times before, that he did in fact, refer to me as a girlfriend, to a friend of his that we saw when we were in Vegas. And I never would have had any of this information if I didn't like really receive this calling to go on this deep dive. Uh My whole body was like, you need to reclaim your story in order to reclaim yourself. Fragments of me, pieces of me. I just felt like they were everywhere and they belonged to everybody else but me. It was like this giant puzzle. I just had to put things back together in a way that was true and made sense. And with each piece, I could breathe into a whole self almost for the first time in my whole life.
0: When was it that he passed away?
1: Just over six years ago now, I think.
0: Is your mother still living? Yes. And so how are things panned out there?
1: It's the t- hardest, trickiest part of my whole experience that never ever, I cannot say enough never evers to emphasize that it never one time, even as a tiny thought, occurred to me that I would ever be estranged from anybody in my family. I'd never mm. even heard of it. It was like, what are you talking about? All those notions of, you know, families uh, is the one who has your back and blood is thicker than water. And it was, this is your lot in life. You got to make the best of it. And, you know, what happened through writing my story and starting to talk to literally everyone about it. And then I was like, I have to talk to my mom too. We hadn't talked about any of this since maybe I was 16, 17 years old when I mm-hmm. organized an intervention with social services for my family. I was like, Did okay, she get sober? No, no yeah. one. It, my intervention made everything worse. Yeah. Shocking. <laughs> it wasn't helpful at all. It made it so bad, in fact, that I was bracing for that kind of impact again, going, There's this part of it, It's like, why do you want to have these conversations again now? Like, I got so burned, I got so brutalized. And yet I was like, well, I got to, because a part of me wanted to salvage a relationship with my mom and maybe even have one with her for the first Mm -hmm. time ever. I'm like, well, now he's dead. He's not pulling the puppet strings anymore. Maybe I can get her back. Maybe I had what I now feel is this toxic hope this hope that maybe one day she'll see, maybe one day she'll release me, maybe one day she'll validate me. Now he's gone. Now I've written pages and pages of a book and talked to everyone in our mutual lives. And we all agree, Andrea, that this is real and it happened and it was horrific. Maybe now. And basically she was like, I can't do it. It's too painful. I'm going to pray for you, you know, all of these sort of like, on some level you go, oh, well, it sounds like maybe she's sort of going, you know, I love you and I want to have you in my life. But basically, yeah, that door is closed. And I was like, okay, then the door is closing because to the extent that you still see me as a liar who made it all up is the extent that I am in harm's way by keeping you in my life, even if you're my mom even if I know that you're deeply traumatized and all of these things, and I can have compassion for that. But I think my compassion and my empathy and my understanding outweighed my need to protect myself my whole life. I'm gonna do, I'm gonna help you do the work so that maybe, and I'm just like, no, I'm not waiting for anyone else to do their work to decide that I'm worth taking care of. And again, Mm -hmm. that extends to my son because I am a mother now. And if you're putting me in harm's way by seeing me as the bad guy, I know intergenerationally, I know it's already steeped in my body and I'm having to work so hard every day to break cycles I didn't even know lived in me until oh, I uncovered another one and another one. It's like the hardest work I will ever do. And I'm just fiercely protecting it. And honestly, it's the biggest heartbreak of my life. Especially when I look at my son and I'm like, I will do anything to show up and be the parent that he needs me to be. I'm going to do it like so flawed and he's still going to have stuff that he comes to me and his mom, you know, like you kind of suck that one up and I'm going to go, yeah, you know what? I totally did. And I'm so sorry. And what else do you want to tell me about that? Right. I'm never Mm going to do it correctly. But I'm so fiercely committed to being the parent that he needs me to be, not the parent that I dreamed of being, that I hoped it was going to be like some version of fantasy that it just is not. That the idea that after all this time, she still just is not capable, it hurts. It hurts so that it is not what I wanted. My every intention was like, this is finally going to bring her around. And you know what it did? It brought me around. And I honestly think that is, it's like the cool and heartbreaking part of healing from childhood trauma, but also the blessing and the miracle is that we can do it. We don't have to wait for anyone to say, yes, I fucked up. Yes, that was horrible. Like the healing is in our hands and thank God for that. That's, I'm so grateful, even though it's this painful. And I go, you know what? hardest thing I've ever done, hardest conversations I've ever had, I would do it all again in a heartbeat. Mm. Finally feeling like I belong to myself. I am not riddled with so much guilt and shame and anxiety and hypervigilance. I still have my stuff. I still get triggered, right? I get emotional flashbacks, all of these things. It is not my every waking moment where I'm sitting there going, I've done all this work and I'm sober forever. Like what's wrong with me? It's, you know what? There is nothing wrong with me. There was never Mm -hmm. anything wrong with me. My body was doing exactly what our bodies are designed to do to protect us from such horrific things. And then I got stuck there and I didn't know it. I didn't Mm -hmm. know that I was stuck in these chronic trauma responses, just trying to protect myself now and now. And I don't have to live in that bracing.
0: I I had dinner with my dad last week. And so they're both horrible alcoholics. And I've really started to dethaw thaw in the past year or so to where like the tears are coming up, you know, for me, because in my family, it was like anger, numbness, right? There was never any sadness, you know, displayed. And um, I went to the U.S. Open with my mom a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I never, I'm at a point where, you know, if I can have good times with my mom, I'll take them. Like I'm prepared, like if, you know, if something happens, like I have tools, I can, you know, pivot, you know, if, if I need to, you know, but we've gone a couple of years in a row and it's been actually a really lovely experience. And I'll take any of those moments that I can, like where we can actually have a nice time together. Cause that's the thing that I think is kind of a challenge and fucked up as in my story is like, my mom was like the most amazing mom, except wow. for when she was drinking. And she was like a periodic, wow. you know? So it was like very sporadic. But like, she was not drinking like she I mean, she was just the most amazing mom. And she was and even into like, my early sobriety and several years and, and it's been in the past. I don't know it probably started to really go downhill like around when I've had three years and then it's just been for the past 12 years she's not the same person anymore, you know, mentally she's changed so much just because of the, the the disease, like what, what it's done to her brain. I think that sometimes it's like almost harder in a way to like, to have once had something and no longer have it as opposed to like other people who their moms were always just awful, but it was not a good experience this year. Like it didn't, it wasn't, it didn't go well. I won't do it again. And that's like sad and heartbreaking. But so, so I had a conversation with my dad last week. They live in Lake Tahoe during the summer. But he basically was like, you know, I try to stay out of it as much as I can. I was so involved for so long, you know, that like now I really try to like, you know, I don't really know what's going on. It's Then the way that I like to explain it is like, I also don't participate in the family denial either though. So I will like acknowledge the elephant in the room. I just won't try to carry the elephant out of the room. And basically, you know, he's just like, yeah, I mean, it's, and he's no, uh, he's got his own issues, but his alcoholism is a lot less severe than hers, you know, and he's, and he said this so many times before that he's, you know, we either need to go to therapy or get a divorce. And I've heard that my whole, whole entire life, but what he was explaining to me was very tragic and sad and heartbreaking And I still, like, I was very numb in the conversation and I'm still, like, I still, the emotions, like, it hasn't hit, you know? I'm very dissociated from the conversation still. So I'm wondering, like, what your experience has been with that. Numbness and dissociation? Yeah, as far as, especially as it relates to kind of, like, these, what you're sharing about with your mom. Yeah. You know, sometimes it can come up, but there still is just this protective, I know it's my, Teenager protecting my inner child, you know,
1: I think a couple of things. I mean, honestly, as you were just talking, therapist me wanted to move into the chair and have us slow it down. And what do you notice in your body right now? I'm not going to do that to you, but if I were your therapist, that is what we would do. Uh, because that's where all of that lives, right? It's in the body and it's in the slowing. And then you reference your inner teenager, and I think you know, internal family systems and parts Uh work is so profoundly powerful for healing complex. I just started
0: doing it with my therapist. I realize how important it is, you know?
1: I just think because we're so complex, right? That there is this very rational, very adult part of you that understands and gets it but there are other parts of you that are really literally stuck in different chronological ages, with different coping skills, mm-hmm. with different jobs, right? This we mm-hmm. have these, you know, like protectors, Managers. the, the mm-hmm. wounded parts that are like, I'm out of here. I'm never gonna be seen again. And I think isolating them in a way, just that part of it, is so healing and helpful. Because it reduces the shame and it allows me to go, oh, well, of course, the teenager or of course, the 12 year old or the eight year old is devastated. And the rest of me can still be me, like whole self, full self, authentic self, everyone look at it. But I can lean in to be present for that other part of me, which is essentially, I think, you know, I think it's interesting. I did not set out to write. My memoir, the the idea of like, I'm going to write a memoir on childhood drama is like the worst idea. You know, like it would never come to me like that. But I was just struck when he died. Ages and pages of material in the middle of the night, like stories and essays and all these things. And then all my history of horrific romantic relationships. And I was like, how does this all hang here? And it was a big jumble and I couldn't quite make sense of it. But I think it's sort of amazing that now I can look back and see that I was using, not consciously, but I was using all of these amazing principles of trauma therapy while I was sitting at my computer typing out my story. Even like the act of typing is a form of bilateral stimulation that we use from EMDR. The way that you write a scene engaging your senses. And so you go back into a story and you go, what did it smell like? What did I see? The language of the nervous system, which is what we have to attune to in trauma, is the senses, right? And then I'm going back and I'm looking at these parts and it was years until I could do this, but I'm riding the scene of the eight-year-old and the 12-year-old and the 26-year-old and the 30-year-old, but I'm finally seeing it through the lens of a trauma therapist. And I'm now being with those parts in this very different way. And so I just think it's kind of amazing that this spontaneous thing happened that I wasn't in the driver's seat of, and yet it was pulling from all of these principles that now the research shows us is so powerful, like all these different modalities, right? The sensory work is also Peter Levine, somatic experiencing, right? So pulling from all of these principles that are so powerful. And, and I believe too what's, what is universal about that, because not everyone's going to go and and write a book about their story is my body knew what I needed more than I knew what I needed. Uh-huh. I it was like, I was being pulled sometimes begrudgingly. Like I would look to my husband and be like, this is pain porn. This is awful. This hurts so bad. Why am I doing this? And he'd go, huh? I know. Yeah. You're not going to, finish. You're, you're done. Yeah. You can just, you know, hang up that pencil or whatever. And then the next day I'd be like, that kid that can be like, I got to keep going. I got to keep going. There was something that needed to be worked through. And I think there's different ways that can look for different people. Sometimes it's on a pottery wheel. Sometimes it's in their hiking boots out on a trail that to really be curious about those things that we feel called to, that can bring us into our bodies that can engage us with present time. And the senses, and because there's something I believe so healing in those callings in those moments, in those experiences, I believe the body knows what it needs and mm-hmm. and sometimes that's trauma therapy, right? Sometimes that's getting our butt in a seat with someone who is not just trauma informed. My bias is I want someone who is trauma trained, who really has some skills and tools and theoretical framework. Again, I sat on a lot of couches with a lot of really well meaning folks and I talked and talked my head off and I felt like I maybe was getting somewhere. And it was, you know, largely not so much. So, working with someone who can hold the space for you to go in and say, Hey, can we slow this down? What are you noticing in your body right now as you're telling me about how hard it was with your mom this year? You know, and really follow
0: that thread. What was the initial somatic modality that you used when you really started diving into your own healing? It's interesting. I mean, I first
1: trained with somatic experiencing Peter Levine's work, and it was just like, oh, my gosh, this is mind blowing. And I still love it. And I incorporate it. And then I did EMDR training. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. You know? And now I'm, you know, super interested in IFS. I also think the research that's coming out of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy is I mean, it's undeniable. We can't sort of turn away from that and look at some of the powerful things that are happening there again, because it's stored in the body and our conscious mind is saying, hell, no, I will not go there. And
0: sometimes- What are your thoughts on that with somebody with substance abuse issues?
1: I think we have to be super mindful and careful. I think if your intention is ever like, one and done, I'm going to go do ayahuasca in Peru. And that makes me nervous, right? Yeah, I think it also makes me nervous, (laughs) the idea of just like doing it yourself, a DIY situation. But I think if you're really doing it in the right set and setting with the right intention and support, that it's really grounded again, in someone who is trauma trained. And then I think, again, we can't sort of turn away from some of the results that are happening there for people Uh that have failed by every single modality. So it's like everything else. I don't think there's one panacea. I think it's all nervous system dependent. We all have a very different relationship to our stories, our experience, our truth, the access to that, to our feelings, to our bodies. But I find that I just want to keep availing myself of I you know maybe I'm a still an addict in that way. I'm a freedom junkie. I'm just like I want more access to me. I want more conscious choice. I want more availability again to be the kind of parent that I want to be for my son. and so if something seems like it's gonna help me get there i'm I'm gonna be open to it,
0: yeah, and a couple of things, so there are, are so many different modalities that people can partake in. What do you think the best way is for, for someone to navigate that as far as which route to take?
1: I think you need to be talking to a professional, in my opinion. You know, a, a lot of people reach out to me. Are you taking clients? Are you taking clients. And I'm not, but I always give the same suggestion, which is I think psychology today, if you're looking for a traditional psychotherapist, is a great resource. I would look for people that have experience with complex trauma, that have specific trauma trainings. For the people that have experienced that deep emotional abuse or narcissistic abuse, I would ask that therapist, do you have, you know, training or information? Are you well-versed in this? Because the people that aren't can end up going, well, they're just doing their best. And can you give them a break? And it's, you know what? We're talking about deeply abusive people that have zero intention of changing, no capacity for empathy. It's it's a different rule book. You're not just looking to go, oh, we'll just have compassion. It's no, have boundaries have real Mm -hmm. boundaries. It's allowed. And so make the phone calls, make several appointments with several different people. If it's available to you, really trust your body in that process. What felt right? Mm. Why? And then engage in the conversations because it's always a process, you know, to the point of the woman who, scared you half to death by saying, this is going to take a long time. Like it's a process that it's an ongoing path. We're never done. And so there's no rush. It's not, I need to go do eight EMDR sessions and, you know, a ketamine treatment and with a dose of somatic experiencing, it's not just be in your body, be in your life, go take a walk. Orient with your senses to your surroundings. Notice what you see. Honestly, these are the building blocks, some of the most foundational things. I think through all my social media, as you click on my links, I have a link to a DIY sort of trauma toolbox that has a whole list of things that you can be doing in your life that I believe are so nourishing for your nervous system to be in present day. Because trauma is the past as though it's happening now, it's happening now. And so these ways of orienting to the present moment. So it's all of it and it's be intentional and trust the process and it's not a race. And don't do it alone, right? That's exactly. the other piece where I go, listen, I, yes, I was sitting at my kitchen table writing this thing for five years, and I was doing it without any support. Mm-hmm. I was, because I, at that point, I was like, therapists have kind of burned me. I feel like I haven't mm-hmm. really been well served there. And I wasn't well served because they weren't trauma therapists. Mm-hmm. And I, what we know about complex trauma now, we didn't know at all when I got sober. We didn't know really this much when I was finishing graduate school and all these things. And we're just better informed now. And so avail yourself of the information, right? Like it's my whole mission on all my social media, my Instagram and all these things. It's I'm trying to bring more real information to folks in a way that's accessible because sometimes those trauma textbooks and those things, it's like, I can hardly read it sometimes. I totally dissociate. I'm like, boop, I'm out of my body. I'm not trying to do this. <laughs> Exactly. And so find ways to get more information. There's a lot of downsides to social media, but this is one of the huge upsides to me is that there are amazing professionals. You've had a ton of them on your podcast that are giving away so much good information for free.
0: hmm I know. Oh.
1: What you and I would have done with that in our own childhoods, right? It's-
0: No shit. I want to talk with you briefly about fawning. So can you talk about what, how has working through that looked like for you? In what ways do you find yourself still struggling with it?
1: Yeah, it's so huge. It's so, I didn't know that I was stuck in a chronic fawning trauma response. What did that look like for you? Well, a lot of it was privileging my mom's wounding over what my own needs, right? Mm -hmm. Because I learned it so early on. I'm going to figure out what you need and try not to certainly be a burden to you. I'm going to like wrap my every choice around what I think you need in the hope that my needs are finally going to be met. And so Hmm. that- I just
0: had this thought. So it's, you know, one of the things that really blocks people is, you know, the fear of talking about my childhood is betraying my family. And that in essence is fawning. Yes, that's a hundred percent. That's fawning. And I think the other reason I like the language
1: of fawning so much is because to me, and maybe this is because I kind of grew up in AA and codependency language comes out of the addiction world. And it almost seemed like the well, you're either an addict or you're a codependent. And if I identify yeah, as it. an addict, I'm right? Yes, I'm definitely, <laughs> I belong everywhere. But I think there was this kind of a vibe of like those codependents, those al right? It's like, I don't want to be that. Don't be a doormat, get some self-esteem. It all felt like a choice. And, and of course there's this part of me going, well, I'm not a doormat, right? Like I'm not that. And so my defense against all of that kind of blocked me from seeing how I was engaging in those very same behaviors. And when I got to Pete Walker's work, and he's telling me why, from a trauma perspective, the body will always privilege safety and connection above all else. And this was the family I was born into. I didn't have a lot of wiggle room in terms of finding safety and connection and how brilliant. This is where I flip this whole notion of man, like just take care of yourself and lock yourself and do some affirmations. It's, you know what? My body was so brilliant that even as a young child, it figured out how to receive even a modicum of safety and connection. And then guess what? That's my blueprint. Because we don't learn by theories, right? Oh, of course I want to be X, Y, and Z. We are experiential learners. Mm-hmm. We are Learners. So that's all I learned. I know how to keep myself safe in the context of active addiction, liars, abusers, manipulators, scapegoating me. I'm going to take the blame. So in a way, I didn't have a chance but to go out and find people that fit this model because, not because I had a bad picker and what's wrong with me, I was doing it because that's where my body felt the safest because it was my only relationship to safety. All my tools and my skills were forged in that environment. I, I don't know whose quote this is, but I used it in the book that red flags don't look like red flags when they feel like home. And so I did it over and over and I'm knowing that I'm doing it over and I'm like telling my therapist, why can't I have a healthy relationship to save my life? And now I know why, because I was reenacting my trauma, Mm -hmm. which was me being stuck in a chronic fixing, pleasing, I'll take all the responsibility. Don't worry. I got it. A response. And In order for me to start to heal that, like I really have, I had to look at boundaries. Like we talked about the biggest boundaries that I've had to set of all, which was my relationship with my mom. But it's in every facet of our lives, right? It's sort of this reflexive thing. Our trauma responses aren't conscious. We just do it, right? So I will still to this day go into like a, oh, you know, oh, you seem like you're in a bad mood, whoever this person is. And it's my fault and I need to fix it, you know? And then I have to, notice that when I can and take some deep breaths and orient to present time and place and maybe put my hand on my heart, which is a powerful stance of self-compassion. It releases oxytocin bias for us. And I can take some deep breaths and be like, I don't have to do that today. I can be present to whoever, which part is activated inside of me. And I can take care of that part and do it differently. And so. Some days I can do that really well. And some days those tools are not available to me. And then I really have to double down with self-compassion and just go, yeah, it's always going to be, it's always going to be a process for me, just talking about these things too, and sharing my own experience on places like Instagram, it's also reduced the shame where I just can laugh at it and be like, oh, of course I did that. Of course I did it again and again. And here's what works sometimes. And here's a framework that's interesting to me And oh." I did it again. You know, it's a process, but one that I'm engaged in.
0: When was the last time that you experienced a pretty intense emotional flashback?
1: That's a good question. Not super recently, but maybe about a year or so before that. I know I was talking about it more regularly on social media because I was going through some stuff. Historically, I have had that feeling that I'm going to get in trouble and Mm. I'm going get in trouble, you know, I'm 49 years old, right? Like, who am I going to get in trouble with? But it was this deep, not only am I going to get in trouble, but it's going to be bad. Like it's going to be, I mean, I guess similar from my childhood, it was like, you're, you're not allowed, you're not allowed anything. You're hunkered down in the middle of nowhere in the mountains, no phone calls, no friendship. We don't even look at you in your own home. You don't exist. Right. So anything that feels like if I can avoid that. And so you know, I think we used to have this idea with flashbacks that they were like we see in the movies, like a vet who is at a 4th of July parade and it's suddenly back in wartime, right? But really it's any little fragment and sometimes it's a known fragment sense memory and sometimes it's not. So in other words, sometimes I can pinpoint it and be like, oh yeah, that person was maybe expressing some frustration with me and it triggered something in me or Maybe it was a smell or uh, who knows, but sometimes I can't place it. It just feels real. I'm like, and my whole body is guarding against what do I need to do? How do I get out of this? It's this deep rumination and obsession about like running over the thing. And now when that captures me, eventually I can see it for what it is and start to kind of like, come back into present time and do some of these other things like I've already shared, just really offering compassion and orienting, but it feels so real when you're in it. It just Uh feels so real and there is no time. Yeah, and that language of emotional flashback is also Pete Walker's. I'm so grateful for that. you know, Because again, I just felt stupid, I'll be honest. I'll be like, I know I'm not consciously going to get in trouble, but when I was flooded with that feeling, And it felt so real and I felt so childlike and I had no resources. And I mean, that powerlessness is devastating. And so then to have the shame on top of it, well, you should know better. Like why, you know, consciously, you know, you're not going to get in trouble. It's not a conscious thing. My body is being completely triggered back to a state that was
0: terrifying and it thinks it's happening again. It's such an interesting place to, to witness it. You know, (sighs) it's okay. Yeah. I'm going to die because this person, I know I'm not going to die because this person didn't text me back after 30 minutes, but I'm like pretty fucking sure I'm going to die. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. 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 It feels that bad. It's miserable. It's the most miserable experience ever. Yeah. But God, yeah, I just remember the first time that I was able to kind of have that witnessing experience of it and it makes it worse, but almost better at the same time. You know, it's like, it's... Yeah, because like- yeah, it's not a quick fix. It's not like I can go, oh, this is an emotional flashback.
1: I feel so You're much... Good. It's yeah. like a slow... like oh, It's miserable. Tissue, one little thread at a time, I can start to kind of like disconnect from and be like,
0: oh, okay, I'm eventually back. So I'm going to put... Links to all of your shit in the show notes, your books. Oh, the memoir is wonderful. What else do you want to promote or what are you doing, working on? What do you want the folks to know? I
1: mean, I think where I'm having the most fun is the social media stuff now. And particularly after the book came out, a lot of people were like, well, what are you going to do now? And subscriptions or workshops and all these things that I think a lot of other people are doing really well. And I didn't necessarily feel called into that space But the thing that kept occurring to me was really blending these different parts of me. This has been such a big piece of my healing. It's like, I'm not just a survivor or an addict or, you know, a clinician or an expert or a trauma therapist or a mom, like I'm all of these things all in one place. And the ability to be that without shame has been so healing. And so for me to be a survivor and a therapist and kind of a nut job, just like being super playful and childlike and having fun is the space that I've wanted to continue to grow. So I started this variety show on YouTube called Stand-Up Therapy. I've only had one episode. I'm working on the second one. I just filmed a cooking show. was so Dr. fun. Oh my God, it's so fun. Yeah, I just went and met Dr. Ramani out at her studio space. And I brought us chef hats and made us aprons that say we make the recipe so you don't have to. And we're making a trauma bond smoothie. And it's, I don't know, this is what I want to do. I want to make these concepts really accessible, funny and fun. So we don't feel so alone. I love the performance aspect. And like I said, laughing at things that have honestly brought me so much pain. And now that I know what it is and have the language and can be a little bit softer around it, I just want to help other people be softer around it. And so This is what I'm doing now. We'll see where that goes, but I'm having fun with it for sure.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been really awesome. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I know you heard something that could help you on your own journey. As always, uh, if you did not, seek help immediately. Okay. Thanks again to Ingrid. I love that. I hope y'all enjoyed it as well. Let me know what you thought. You know, there's just certain people when you get on with them, you just click right away. And, um, I, f- she felt like an old friend as soon as we started, started talking. So, uh, what else? Oh, I just wanted to tell you a little bit about my trip with Tiffany. Uh, we went to Vegas, so I don't know if you heard me share that in the, um, in the beginning of the shit show Saturday episode for this past week. So we went to Vegas and we had a a good old time eating and dancing and being shit shows. And I just want to encourage you all. We need to have fun. We need to have fun in our lives. Please make an effort to have a little bit of fun in your life. You know, this work, this recovery work that we do is so hard not to mention, you know, we all have lives and jobs and kids and all that stuff. It is so important that we make time and effort to to enjoy life. So we went to see um, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Well, first on Saturday night, we went out to dinner at this place called Ferraro's, which was off the strip. It was an Italian restaurant, which we desperately needed a, a good meal because all of our meals up until that point had fallen short with the exception of the pizza from the food court at the Venetian. Um, but we needed a solid meal win and we got that at Ferraro's. We then went to see, um, the concert earth, wind and fire. I thought that it was going to be with Lionel Richie because they toured together all summer, but I was mistaken. They're not doing the residency together. Um, but regardless, so fun I mean, Earth, Wind, and Fire is like the best music ever to dance to. And I had like the perfect, we had the perfect seats to where we were like at the end of the aisle. And then I had like this little open space next to me that was like my own little personal dance floor. And I'm sure many of y'all know I'm tall as shit. I'm 5'11. So I have really long limbs, okay? And when I dance, my limbs are all over the damn place. So this was a nice little area for me to have so that I could fully execute my moves without like whacking people in the head, which is something that I've been known to, known to do. Um, and so then that was Saturday night. And so then after uh, the concert, we did a little bit more gambling. So I was prior to the concert, I think I was like $100 down. I like to play blackjack. So I was $100 down and then I played a little bit more and I was like $200 down. Then we went back to get more pizza from the Venetian food court. And then after that, Tiffany was going to go up to the room and I had $75 more that I was willing to lose. So uh, the minimum for the tables at the casino that we were at was $25. So that's three hands, folks, three hands. Well, let me tell you, I sat down with those 75 chips $75 in chips. And I walked away with $1,200 in chips. So not only did I make up all that I lost, I walked away with a profit of $900. I was sitting there for about, I don't know, maybe an hour. And I just, I was, I got it. I I got hot y'all. And on one hand in particular, I made like $400 in one hand. So uh, very proud of myself for, for walking away. Actually, Tommy Bahama sent me a message. He's like, I'm so proud of you for, for walking away when you're, when you're winning. The reason I walked away was because Tiffany saw, shot me a message. I didn't have a room card key. She was like, I'm going to bed. So that's why I, I walked away. Um, so yeah, that was fun. That was the highlight. Uh, what else? I interviewed Michelle Schalfont today. Uh, I am interviewing Bethany Webster on Thursday, which I'm super pumped about. So she is, uh, she has a book, mother hunger. She's a, not mother hunger. What does she have? She's another like mother hunger woman. She didn't write the book, um, mother hunger, but she's, you know, another one of those folks that talks about mother hunger shit. Uh, so that's it. Uh, I love you all. I will see you soon. And I will see you next week for another fucking amazing episode of A Child. It's going to be the I'm raw, of Raw. It's going to be a guy palace. Yeah. What on to? Just let let it all go. Go. What's making you slow now?